0: Uh, Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, You all look a lot more refreshed. I guess having that extra hour of sleep helped. Hopefully, you got some extra rest. Uh, Congrats to any of you who are Houston Astros fans. Apparently, they won the the World Series last night. Uh, If I'm honest, I'm actually not very interested in who wins anymore, just because the Chicago Cubs won one time in my lifetime. So that's all I need. That's all I need. Nothing else matters. Um, before we jump in though, I wanna give you a moment uh, to reflect on this question. Uh, what's a memorable experience uh, that you've recently had that you would want others to experience, right? It could be something simple, it could be something unique. Um, and even as you're reflecting on whatever experiences come to mind, notice what comes up for you, uh, whether it's joy, you know, gratitude, wonder, uh, so think about that, and if you're comfortable, feel free to share with someone next to you. Uh, and if, for those of you online, feel free to share your thoughts on the live chat as well. Um, but what are some memorable experiences that you recently had that you would like others to share as well? All right. Sounds like you all have some memorable experiences out there. Um, if anyone's comfortable, would you like to offer and just kind of share For the rest of us, maybe something that you'd want us to experience. Anyone wanna offer what they shared? Memorable experience? Uh, Yes, so they got to experience uh, the McDonald Observatory, uh, seeing the stars, the star party. It's beautiful. Anyone else? so the experience is you sending someone else to do the crowd surfing is that (laughs) your experience got it dolores yeah so dolores rode her bike from arizona to austin years ago right yeah nice experience everyone should do it (laughs) anyone else well for me uh unsurprisingly uh my most recent you know, memorable experiences, all, all are tied with my sabbatical this past summer. Um, and so one of the places we visited was New Zealand, which is a magically beautiful place. And probably one of the most exciting things, you know, that I, you know, we were planning to do was a stargazing uh, at Lake Takapo, which is one of the dark sky sanctuaries in the world, and uh, doing it from a hot pool. So that's, you know, that's not my picture, that's the website, that's how they sold me. That's how they sold me, who wouldn't want to do that, right? Um, but by the time we arrived in New Zealand, uh, we figured the weather wasn't going to cooperate. Uh, there was gonna be some pretty heavy, intense rainstorms uh, the evening that, of our reservation. Uh, fortunately, I would purchased fully refundable tickets um, and so when things weren't looking very promising, about five minutes before the event, uh, I asked the, the guide, the tour guide, to go ahead and just refund our ticket and we were gonna head out. And as I was waiting for them to process my refund, um, the tour guide made an announcement to the rest of the room and told them that due to the gale force winds that were outside, they were not gonna do any stargazing outdoors, but instead, they were gonna offer their world-class one-of-a-kind indoor VR experience. <laughs> Which, you know, you could hear the collective groans of disappointment and anger starting to build, and so we got out of there as quickly as we could before the riot started. Uh, but fortunately, when we were actually driving to Lake Takapo earlier that evening, we were going through some mountain passes, and I noticed that there were some spots where the sky was clear, uh, where we were driving. And so I stopped the car, we turned off the lights, and we all just exited out of the vehicle into pitch black, just darkness. And when we looked up, it was probably the most amazing view of stars I've ever seen. This picture I tried to take kind of captures it, but not really. Um, but seeing the vastness and beauties of stars, kind of like you were sharing, is just amazing that everyone should experience. Um, and so the McDonald Observatory is a great opportunity. You don't have to go to New Zealand, you can just go st- here in Texas. Um, but one of, our lectionary text for this morning comes from the Psalms, and it reflects on the memorable experiences of the poet David, right, when it comes to his interactions and experience of the divine. And so in Psalm 145, this is what he writes. He says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall extol your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. They will recount the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate." And so this serves as a preview for the rest of the psalm, where David invites us to recount the magnificence, the works of God, to reflect and contemplate on how all of God's goodness is expressed and experienced. And it's also an invitation to consider how we, in turn, live out God's goodness. Because what we receive is meant to be shared. What's modeled for us is meant to be embodied. And so the question I want to explore this morning is that as David shares the different experiences of God's goodness in his psalm, what are the ways we're invited? to experience and embody that same goodness? How are we invited to share that goodness with others? And so as we unpack what David shares in his psalm, I'll also make some connection to how Jesus embodied those experiences of God's goodness and how he modeled modeled it for us to follow. And so we start in verse 17. The Lord, you are just in all your ways and kind in all your doings. Uh, so just for some context, you know, this entire psalm is written as an acrostic poem. So each verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and then just goes in order. And not only was it a memory tool to make it easier to memorize, but in the metaphorical sense, it was David's attempt to capture and, and recount God's good, goodness more fully, right? using all the letters at his disposal. And if we take a look back at the very first verse... David starts off by reflecting on God primarily through the lens and image of a king. And while that can be problematic, right, to view God through a patriarchal and authoritarian lens, he does paint God here as a just and kind king. And if we look back at verse 8, David describes God as slow to anger, full of mercy, grace, and love. And so there's this Underlining kindness and nonviolence that drives the justice God offers. If we look at the Hebrew word for justice, which is mishpat, it goes much deeper than simply punishment or, or righting a wrong. It also means giving people what they're due, which includes their right to wholeness and healing. It conveys a more holistic and complete understanding of what it means to bring about rightness. And so if we consider justice as giving people what they're due, it includes both punishment and protection or care. And for David, God is one who makes space for both things in order to bring about authentic restoration. And so for us, recounting God's goodness invites us to respond with restorative justice we're reminded that, yes, there are consequences for hurtful and violent actions, and justice also includes restoration and healing. If we reflect on the teachings of Jesus, he offered a similar framework for justice. You know, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that the default posture is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and that's the literal definition of retributive justice. Our human tendency with justice is in terms of repaying evil for evil. And yet Jesus offers the alternative of turning the other cheek when someone strikes you, to offer your coat when someone demands your shirt, to walk a second mile when you're forced to walk one. And even though he's instilling a response of nonviolence, it's not a response of passivity. Because the kind of response that he's offering, it holds injustice up in a way that it needs to be confronted for what it is. It draws attention to the truth and reality of the injustice, and at the same time, makes space for restoration. It's Jesus' way of modeling restorative justice that's grounded in kindness and nonviolence. Latasha Morrison, uh, who founded Be The Bridge, uh, an organization that focuses on racial healing and reconciliation, uh, she had this reflection. She said, move, act, and get involved in the good work of kingdom justice by resisting the status quo and seeking restorative justice together. Bridges are not built, Bridges are built not with passivity or avoidance, but with deep, hard work of seeking to understand. Jesus came to restore individual people and break down systems of oppression, to provide a way for his kingdom to appear on earth as it is in heaven. He came so that we, his followers, could partner with him in restoring integrity and justice to broken systems, broken governments, and ultimately broken relationships. And so what is our response? when it comes to the broken systems and relationships that we encounter in our lives? How, how do we practice a form of nonviolent truth-telling that moves us towards restoring the protection and care that God offers to all? And so for us, maybe a practice we can try this week is to look for opportunities to respond with kindness. And as we choose to be intentional about confronting harm and violence that is done to us or others, that we would hold up and draw attention to the injustice through nonviolence. And so who are the people in our lives that we need to respond with restorative justice? The Lord, you are just in all your ways and kind in all your doings. And then we continue in verse 18. You are near to all who call on you, to all who call on your truth. And so David continues to reflect on his experience of God's goodness in the form of nearness and presence. He's recounting how God draws near to those who are in need of God's comfort. When he was going through disruptive and challenging seasons, David experiences God's comfort and presence in his time of need. And so for us, Recounting God's goodness invites us to practice proximity with those who are vulnerable. We're reminded that even in the midst of pain and suffering, Jesus has gone through his own experience of pain and suffering. And that proximity allows him to be in solidarity with us. And when we reflect on the life of Jesus, it's obvious that he practices proximity with those who are the most vulnerable. The women and children who have no voice or power in a patriarchal society. Those who are ill and disabled and excluded because of their physical bodies and health are seen as liabilities. The poor and the homeless who lack the resources to be protected. These were the people Jesus spent all his time with. Living among them, walking with them, standing in solidarity with them. And so that's Jesus' way of modeling what proximity to the most vulnerable looks like. You know, recently Christopher and I, we attended a conference uh, that was created to connect churches and communities uh, that were existing in post-evangelical spaces. And in one of the breakouts, uh, I met a woman named Michelle Warren, who, was, who has decades of experience in advocacy work, uh, in community development, and she wrote a book called The Power of Proximity. And this is how she reflects on the proximity that Jesus modeled. She said, Jesus brought good news to the poor, fully extending his love in death, providing us a way to be reconciled to God. His chosen proximate place was to be born into the world a pauper and die a criminal's death. All of this for us. His proximity had purpose, and our proximity needs to have purpose as well. You know, in her book, she reflects on her own journey and experience of moving into neighborhoods with the poor and vulnerable, whether it was in Dallas or in Denver, where she lives now. And it reminded me about our own experience, both just personally and as a community, uh, as we attempted to practice proximity here in East Austin. You know, early on when we first planted Vox, part of our vision was to be embedded in the neighborhood that we were hoping to serve. You know, we were all inspired after reading about Shane Claiborne and, you know, his intentional community in Philly, and we went to conferences to learn about community development. And some of us had been volunteering uh, in the schools here in East Austin, but we were all still living in Northwest Austin. And so after a period of challenging conversations and discernment, uh, there were a few families that made an intentional choice to move into this neighborhood almost 15 years ago when the demographics and needs were very different back then. And I acknowledge that we were young and idealistic, and we also didn't have complete awareness uh, and understanding of what it meant to be good neighbors, uh, especially in a location that wasn't native for us. And yet we understood that proximity was important in our learning. For us to understand what solidarity actually meant. And so over time, right, we had the privilege of being in proximity with people like Becky, with Kizzy, with Terry, and they taught me what it meant to be present in the midst of poverty, in the midst of systemic challenges. And as we've been able to root ourselves here in this physical location over the years, I acknowledge that this is a changing neighborhood, and the overall growth of our city is leading to complex changes and realities of how the vulnerable continue to be left behind, having to fend for themselves. And so for us, maybe a practice we can try this week is just to reflect on who we need to practice proximity with. Who are the people we need to be near to hear their stories, to learn from their experiences, to be present with? And how might we be purposeful with our proximity, especially when it comes to those who are the most vulnerable? You are near to all who call on you, to all who call on you in truth. And then we close in verse 19. You fulfill the desire of all who fear you and also hear their cry and save them. And so once again, David reflects on his experience of God's goodness in moments of distress and oppression. You know, he's recounting how God saved him, whether it was the time the king, King Saul, was hunting him down, or whether his enemies were were plotting his death. He experiences God's goodness when he was living in fear, literally hiding in a cave, trying to protect his life. And he survived and experienced freedom from that danger and oppression. And so for us, recounting God's goodness invites us to participate in the liberation of the oppressed and marginalized. We're reminded that God's heart is always for the freedom and rescue of those who've had their power and livelihood and resources taken away from them. And when we reflect on the life of Jesus, you know, as we mentioned earlier, he centered himself within oppressive systems. He placed himself in the midst of and chose to be with those who were being oppressed. Whether it was the oppressive political system, you know, living under Roman occupation. Whether it was the oppressive religious system, where religious leaders were carrying out spiritual and financial abuse. It's in these oppressive systems that Jesus empowered and gave voice to those who were never given any. He physically advocated against the religious system when he flipped all the tables, right, in the temple of the money changers. He empowered fishermen, just blue-collar workers, with a place of leadership. He protected women and reminded everyone of their human dignity and worth, even in a patriarchal society. And that's how Jesus advocated for the liberation of the oppressed and marginalized. This is how Cole Arthur Riley reflects on liberation in her book, This Here Flesh. She says, in pursuit of liberation, we do not need to pine after the power of our oppressor. We have to long for our own power to be fully realized. We don't want to steal and dominate someone else's land. We want agency in reclaiming and establishing our own spaces. We don't want to silence the voices of our enemies. We want to be able to safely center our own voices and be believed. Liberation recognizes that I won't get free by anyone else's bondage. And so she's highlighting that part of the work of liberation is to empower and advocate for the voices of those who haven't been given one. And sometimes that's our own. You know, last week we hosted a connection night for the API community here at Vox, uh, which has become a meaningful space for our Asian American community, uh, especially since that was the original demographic of this entire church when we first started. But we intentionally started these meetups in the spring of last year um, as a response to the Atlanta spa shootings that killed eight people and six of them were Asian women. And part of our reflection as a group was processing the increased racism and hate crimes that Asian Americans were experiencing across the country, uh, which was also related uh, to COVID emerging from China. But this oppressive behavior has been something that's deeply ingrained in the Asian experience in this country, right? From building railroads during the gold rush to the Chinese Exclusion Act to the Japanese internment camps. And over time, our voice continued to be silenced. So much so that it became internalized within our culture. Right? Over time, our goal was just to assimilate, just to blend in, right? keep our heads down and not stand out or cause any trouble. And that's how we earned the distinction of the model minority. Because we chose not to use our voice to name the oppressiveness of white body supremacy. But as I did more research, and as I began to hear stories of protest movements led by Asian American communities in our history, right, I realized that there have been people who have been advocating for our voice to be heard. In 1975, the era was born, right, 20,000 Asian Americans in New York protested the police beating of Peter Yu In 1983, there were protests because of the hate crime and murder of Vincent Chen in Detroit. In the 1980s, 20,000 Chinatown garment workers in New York, most of them Chinese American women, protested and went on strike until they got fair contracts for their work. And so it was really meaningful for me personally last year to participate in the Stop Asian Hate rally that was hosted on the Houston Tillotson campus it was a way to safely center our voices as we move to liberate our oppressive experiences of being Asian American in this country. And so for us, knowing that God's goodness is expressed in the liberation of those who are oppressed, what's our role? What's our participation in advocating for those who are marginalized? What does our advocacy look like and does it actually go beyond rhetoric and become embodied in our choices, in our economics, in our bodies? And so as we close, you know, my hope for us is that we, you know, as we recount the goodness of God, that we would be intentional in living out that same goodness for others to experience. The goodness that comes from restorative justice that brings nonviolent healing. The goodness that comes from proximity to the vulnerable that offers solidarity. The goodness from the liberation of the oppressed that advocates for the voices and power of those that don't have. And especially in these disruptive and divisive times that there's this need for the goodness of God. let me so close with this prayer. God who is just and kind, grounded in love and nonviolence, may we move toward a justice that restores, that breaks the cycle of scapegoating and violence. Jesus who chose to be human in order to become one of us so near to us, may we embody the same solidarity and practice proximity with the most vulnerable and spirit who advocates on our behalf, creating spaces for all to be seen and heard. May we advocate for those on the margins in ways that go beyond words. And so we ask all this in the kindness of God, our creator, the solidarity of Christ, and the freedom of the spirit. Amen.